Our scripture passage this, this morning is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17. I'm reading through, uh, from the New American Standard Version. Therefore, consider the members of your bo earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him, to God the Father, the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's great to be among you this morning. Some of you are probably wondering, who is that person? Been, uh, my wife and I have been gone for the last six or seven weeks. I've lost track. We've uh, been on an extended trip across around the country, part for work, a little bit for a college reunion for my wife, a trip to see a new granddaughter of mine, my mom, my brother, um, and then just some rest and relaxation. Uh, six weeks, 7,269 miles in a 25-year-old, 40-foot-long motorhome that causes me a lot of anxiety, which you'll hear more about, I'm sure. Um, but it's good to be back. You've been missed, and I'm grateful to uh, have the opportunity to stand here before you today. Uh, Mike and uh, Sten and I had a, a preaching team meeting on Thursday. I talked about what I was going to preach. Sten was like, absolutely no way am I going to be there for that. So uh, actually, he's uh, unfortunately at home under the weather, along with his wife and daughter, so we can keep him in our thoughts and prayers, um, as there are a number of folks in our body who are 
um, dealing with some things. Uh, but I'm grateful to be back, and thank you for uh, tolerating um, my absence. I say that particularly to my coworkers who carry an extra load when one of us is gone. And it's not lost on me or my family, the, the blessing and the privilege it is that we have to be able to, to do those things. Um, but we are continuing this morning in our series on Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, which we've entitled Truth for Troubled Times. We're talking about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, especially when we're facing difficulty. And all of us, friends, are facing difficulty of, of one time or another. And these are indeed troubled times, as we just prayed for the conflict in the Middle East, and there's conflict in Europe, and there's dysfunction in our government here at home, and there's earthquakes in Afghanistan. It's, it's overwhelming, it feels to me at times, to look at the news and try to, to process everything that's going on. And Paul and Timothy have, have written to this church in Colossae, a church that, that Paul has a connection to. Paul writing from prison, he's, he's writing to this church that is too experiencing some turbulence as the result of some deceptive philosophies and teachings that are being permeated among the, the members. In verse chapter 2, verse 19, he says, you've lost connection with the head. You've lost connection with Christ. And so chapters 1 and 2, as you've been following along, they've, they've set the stage. Paul has set the stage by showing how the teachings of Christ are superior to all other claims. Whatever deceptive philosophies, whatever ideas, whatever extraneous religious requirements these um, false teachers, these disruptors are putting on the members of the church, Paul is saying that Christ is superior to all those things. And so as Pastor Sten introduced us last week to the beginning of chapter 3, it's a turning point in the letter. It's a transition to practical matters within the church. And Sten drew our attention to this change of tone in the letter. Asking us, in the same way his dog stays focused on a ball, asking us, what are you focused on? And how should your attention be focused on Christ? If Jesus is fully sufficient, what does your life look like? How should you live? What should you do? In the first three verses of this chapter, Paul tells us, but in verse 3, he says, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And our passage this morning begins with a, the word so... A coordinating conjunction, it's tying what follows to what has preceded. And Paul has made, or made the point, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, do these things. And so my question I want to look at this morning for us to consider is, is, is those who are no longer alienated and hostile in our minds that we used to express in evil actions as we see back in chapter 1, verse 21. How should our lives manifest as those whose 
who have died to our earthly nature and our life is hidden with Christ in God. If Christ is all and in all, as verse 11 of our passage this morning tells us, what does the life of the renewed person look like? How should this glorious truth transform us? As Paul says, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in your faith and not shifted away from the gospel that you heard. He says in verse 23 of chapter 1. So I've structured this sermon on on two things that Paul is exhorting us to do in this passage. Now while occasionally my skills as a preacher may make some of my sermons do-do, this is a do-do sermon. That should be funny to those of you 13 and under, at least. My self-confidence as a preacher is based on people laughing at my jokes. My mother-in-law, unfortunately, is at home with my father-in-law, who's under the weather. So, anyway, she laughs at all my jokes. But I also want to address something, this idea of doing as Christians, because I've been in fellowship with 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 others who, any time that I taught that we were to do something, they struggled with that. This idea that Christ has completed the work on the cross for us, which is true. He has done all these things, but God invites us to participate in this life of transformation. I love how Dallas Willard puts it, grace is not opposed to effort, but grace is opposed to earning. He actually says it the other way, grace is not opposed to earning, Or grace is opposed to earning, but not opposed to effort. So brothers and sisters, God is calling us to do something as disciples of Christ. And Paul is exhorting the church in Colossae to do some things. And this portion of the passage I want to focus on, which is verses 5 to 11. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you that you offer us new life in Christ. And that you have not left us alone to muddle through this troubled world by ourselves. That you've given us your word and you've given us your son who is all in all. And you have implanted the spirit. You have filled each of us who have entrusted our lives to your son. You have filled each of us with your spirit. Would you, by the power of your spirit, open our hearts and minds this morning to what it is that you have for each of us here today, and we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, picking up here in verse 5 of chapter 3, looking at at 5 through 7, Paul says, so put to death whatever in your nature belongs to the earth, sexual immorality, impurity, shameful passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. That's verse 5. Paul has given us this list of of things that are of a fallen human's earthly nature, things that are not of the heaven above, but of our this earth below. And he says that they're idolatry. He lists these five things. It's idolatry is actually a pretty complex concept as you look across the scriptures, but fundamentally, an idol is anything that is more important to you than God. And those who don't know Christ and don't know God can easily place these things of greater importance. And 
the idea, this close association of, of sexual immorality and greed was, was a part of Old Testament teaching. But Paul is talking about lawless living in general, living your life outside of the edicts of God. It's, it's all that's anti-Christian he's summing up in these five things. It's everything that's antithetical to a Christ-saturated life. He reminds them in verse 6, he says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience being this, this collective phrase for all who live their lives outside of being obedient to what God is calling them to, commanding them to, and transforming them into. He reminds them in verse 7, he says, you also lived your lives in this way at one time when you used to live among them. He's reminding the Colossians of, of what they used to be. And it's a warning not to fall back in to those things. Now, sexual immorality and impurity and lust and evil desire and greed are all things that probably still affect us from time to time. But, but Paul is reminding us that as believers that our lives should not be enslaved to those things. Will we struggle with them? Will we wrestle with them? Of course. But Paul is saying these aren't the central things of our lives, staying connected to the head, being in Christ, being filled with Christ. Those are the things. So he's reminding me, he says, put it to death. It's not, hey, work on it. I'm praying for you, brother or sister. Just keep working. He's saying, put it to death. Kill it. Bury it. Do away with it. In such a way as, as its ability to come back is incredibly limited, if not. And I hope that we all can be free from those things. It sounds pretty simple. Hey, put it to death. Yeah, I'll work on that. So how do we do it? Well, I think it starts with repentance. This imagery of repentance in the Bible is this idea of, of, of turning away from something and moving back toward what is correct and what is good and what is right. A, a turning away from sin and a, a moving back toward Christ. Repentance at the face value of the term sounds easy. Just repent. Turn around. But it's also hard. I, was, uh, I get a newsletter from a, a gentleman who I look to for a lot of discipleship things. He's a, actually he was an Anglican priest. Now he's Episcopalian. Um, but he says, repenting is easy and hard. His name's Ben Sternkey. He says, it's easy in the sense that all you have to do is say you were wrong and begin to walk in a new direction. You don't have to have any money or skill or pedigree to repent. Anyone can do it. You just turn around. But he says, repenting is hard in the sense that it requires you to rethink everything about how you thought the world was. It demands you actually trust in the mercy of God. To repent, you must take the risk 
that your life is not bound up in your status in the eyes of others. You must believe that righteousness isn't the same thing as never being wrong. It demands that we trust in the mercy of God, he says. It demands that we take a risk that our life is not bound up in the status of, of the eyes of ourselves or the eyes of others, the things that we're holding to, that we're unwilling to risk. He says to repent, you actually have to believe in the kingdom of God. And it can seem pretty far-fetched to believe that we're simply loved and thus being wrong isn't the worst thing that can happen to us. In fact, in the kingdom of God, repentance is one of the best things that could happen on any given day. If you're wrong, the best thing is to know it so you have a chance to make a new choice. The opportunity to go in a new direction is freedom that's available to everyone. The idea that in repentance is freedom should inspire each of us. This idea that that God loves us so much that he just wants us to continue turning away from our earthly nature, to put to death our earthly nature, and keep turning back to him. It's not a simple process. I think that's why as disciples, God gives us a lifetime of transformation. God is certainly powerful enough to come into your heart and my heart and change us forever and require nothing on our part in the work involved in, in becoming a people who are more like his son Christ. But part of the mystery of God is, is why he does it this way. And so it starts with repentance. And the other part, I think, is, involves gratitude. In this letter, we see Paul expressing his gratitude to, the, to God for the Colossian church. In the first chapter, verses 13 and 14, he, he reminds the Colossians that God, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness, the powers of this world. And he has transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We can all be grateful for that, and Paul reminds us to be grateful, and I think that expressing our gratitude to God for what he's done for us in Christ, what he's doing for each of us in our hearts, is part of how we spur ourselves on in one another to love in good deeds. It's part of this process of turning away from our earthly nature, putting it to death, and turning back to God. But Paul says he's rescued us from the powers of this world and the powers of this world, our earthly nature, these things that are constantly at war against us are incredibly powerful. But Christ lived and taught a way of being human which challenged the powers of this world at every point. You see, the powers of this world say that, that you should lust for power and money. And Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. The powers say use whatever gifts God has given you, your intellect, your resources, your sexuality, your desires for your own gain. 
And Paul says, put those things to death. Use them, learn to use them, grow to use those gifts that God has given you, your intellect, your resources, your sexuality, your desires. Use them for God's glory. Use them for his purposes, for the gain of the kingdom. And Paul has reminded his readers that that God's wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and and disobedient, it's, it's reserved for them. And so this is what we're to remind ourselves and be thankful for, that Christ defeated the powers at the cross, and he's made a way for us to put to death our earthly nature. So that's the first thing that Paul is calling us to do. And the second he picks up in verses 8 through the first half of verse 10. He, made, he draws a contrast. He says, but now put off all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with its practices and have been clothed with the new man that is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. Paul gives another list here, but this list is different. The previous list were those things that characterized somebody's earthly nature, the things that, that drove them, the things that defined them before they submitted their lives to the Lord. But Paul says there's still earthly practices that these sins of speech that that are making harmonious human relationships impossible. It's interesting that in this list, all of them are directed, we direct them at other people. Our anger. When somebody does something that uh, rubs us the wrong way or annoys us or we can't believe they would do that. We're angry. We slander them. We speak badly. We lie to others. Abusive language. I like how J.B. Phillips, who wrote a translation in the late 40s that he, he wrote for, um, for people who find the Bible difficult to read. I like how he summarized these verses. He says, but now put all these things behind you. No more evil temper or furious rage. No more evil thoughts or words about others. No more evil thoughts or words about God. I'd say no more evil thoughts or words about yourself. No more filthy conversation. Don't tell each other lies anymore for you have finished with the old person and he did all, and all, excuse me, and all he did and have begun life as the new person who is out to learn what he or she ought to be according to the plan of God. In this new person of God's design, there is no distinction between Greek and Hebrew, Jew or Gentile, foreigner or savage, slave or freeman. Christ is all that matters, for Christ lives in them all. I'll come back to this in a moment, but Paul is exhorting them, if you've put to death your earthly nature, then put off the old self practices, the things that the old self used to do. Put them away from you. Well, how do we do that? 
If you struggle with anger or slander or gossip or abusive language or lying, how, how do you put off the old self? Well, I want to submit to you that, that it starts by not just saying, I don't want to do that anymore. That's certainly an important part, a desire. But, it, but we have to get down to the level of the desires that are fueling that behavior. Desire itself are, are God-given things. It's neither good nor bad. It's simply a part of being human. God has given us desires. Jesus lived with a constant awareness of the basic fault of humanity, however, that we live with disordered desires. James reminds us in, in his letter, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he says, each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. You want to get a handle on your sin? Get in touch with your desire. And I don't just mean these strong physical desires that might drive lust or sexual impurity. I mean, I mean, hey, I just wish other people would think like me because I'm right and they're not. You see, the challenge we've had as Christians is that so much of our discipleship has really been up at the head level. Read your Bible. Have a devotion. Be in community with others. But it's been so much above this level of a waterline of awareness that we're, most of us, myself included, struggle to be in touch with what's really going on in our heart. And that's what I think we have to apply more attention to. If you look in the Gospels and you see how Christ is dealing with people, he's constantly trying to draw them to be attentive to what's really going on in their own heart. Because in Christ's view, when we align what we think and what we do and what we desire and the love of God that's revealed in Christ, then, then we approach this concept of wholeness that the Bible calls shalom. And so our discipleship has to address our attachment to our relationship with our desires. It was, it was how Jesus attempted to transform those he came to say. He sought to help them get to the level of their desire. People come up to Jesus and he says, what do you want me to do? It's more than just a superficial request of, hey, you know, what, what do you want me to do? I'm, I'm all-powerful, I can do anything. Part of that question is, what are you really asking for? I was reminded in this uh, RV trip, if, if for, um, I've talked about it before, um, you know, I'm 59 years old, I'm learning at this stage of my life that I, I am a lot more anxious than I ever would have told you in my lifetime before. Um, I grew up in a military family, I spent an adult career in the Marine Corps, and in the Marine Corps, you're not really uh, encouraged to deal with your emotions right? Emotions are a liability. Um, I came to Christ at 39. I'll tell you, one of the first things I learned as a disciple was feelings are the last thing you should think, consider. 
It's, it's facts and then faith and then feelings. I remember this image of a train that was in an early discipleship book that somebody gave me. And, and the subtle message there is feelings are the least reliable. So I'm learning to begin to deal more. I'm, I'm actually a feeling person. Those of you know, I, I cry pretty easily. Um, but there are other parts of me. But all that to say, the, um, our mode of taking a family vacation in a 25-year-old motorhome causes me a lot of anxiety. And my family can attest that inside, in the context of a motorhome, oftentimes I'm not an enjoyable person to be around. Okay. A lot of that comes from my perceived need to have a solution for every problem. That to, to make sure nothing can go wrong. And that causes some, dare I say, compulsive or obsessive behavior to try and make sure everything's perfect and right mechanically. And so my, I've told people one of my greatest fears in life, and I don't feel like I have many fears, but one of them is being stranded on the side of the road. And many of you have prayed faithfully that the Trayvans, when we travel, that that would not be the case. And praise God, that has not been the case in a number of trips. And I'm choking. I'm so thankful. <laughs> Believe me. Um, but it, I can be a jerk. My wife doesn't often like me uh, in that context. She still loves me. Today, by the way, is our 18th anniversary. Um, sorry. And I'm really touched that the church is having a picnic, an anniversary picnic for us. I mean, amazing. What a surprise. Wait, oh, oh the sound booth's telling me I've got that wrong. But, um, but all that to say, um, the RV causes me a lot of stress. My oldest son tells me it's called Type 2 Fun. You know, I'd never heard of it, but Type 2 Fun apparently is the type of fun that you don't like the activity when you're doing it, but afterwards you have fond memories. Um, that's what this is like for me. My wife puts together a video on Instagram afterwards that shows the whole trip, and I watch it, and I go, wow, that, that actually really was a great time. <clears throat> but I live in fear every time I turn the key to the ignition that that vehicle won't start. That's the God's honest truth. I've owned it. I've, I've turned that key hundreds of times. Every single time I think to myself, what am I going to do if it doesn't start? Do you know what happens when you turn the key in the ignition of a vehicle? Any, any mechanics out here? Okay, I, I didn't, right? The car turns on. It's a mystery. I don't know how it happens. Well, 1,000 miles into our 7,000-mile trip one morning, I go to start this motorhome to begin our next leg of the journey, and the motor turns over and over and over, and it will not start. And long story shorter, I know my stories are too long, uh, if you pick up the phone and try to get assistance with anybody and you use the words motorhome, most people don't want to come help you, okay? So we find ourselves stranded in a campground, and by the grace of God, a gentleman who's a mobile mechanic comes out, and he helps troubleshoot the problem, and after a lengthy period of time, we figure out that there is a mechanical actuator of the fuel control that has fallen off the engine. The, the bolts have rusted and broken, and this thing is just come away. So what I learned is that when you turn the key in your engine and you energize the electrical system on my motorhome, that electrical signal forces a mechanical arm to actuate, which opens a valve that sends fuel to the engine. 
And so unable to fix this problem, the gentleman does what most resourceful people does, and he produces a bungee cord. And so he connects one part of this bungee cord to the fuel control system, which happens to thankfully have a little nice hole in it that the hook goes in, and he wraps this other part of the bungee cord around the metal frame of my large diesel 40-foot-long 40,000-pound motorhome, and it starts right up. Now, the trick there is, is to turn it off, you have to turn the key, go out of the RV, walk to the back, open a panel, and stick your head and shoulders and your arm all the way into the engine compartment and push the lever that this bungee cord is holding open to turn it off. Now, that's a long story to get to the point of the illustration, which is to say that the bungee cord was not the solution that I wanted. The idea that I was going to spend the next 5,200 miles every time I turned off that vehicle, at every fuel stop, every campground, every time I got pulled over by the state patrol, that I was going to have to go back and turn it off this way, um, caused me a great deal of anxiety. It's not the solution I wanted. The stress of my RV breaking down caused me to be an angry jerk, to be someone who was impatient with my family, to be someone who wasn't loving or caring. But it was the solution that Jesus provided me, if I could go so far as to say that. And that bungee cord is still on my RV, parked out in Forney. And honestly, it was, if I could go so far as to say, it was even a better solution. Because with that bungee cord, that RV never started better than in the years that I'd owned it. Okay? Now, I'm still going to go spend a lot of money and get it fixed. But this is my point, is that oftentimes we can have, we can find ourselves behaving out of, with abusive language or lying to others to get what we want because we think things have to be a certain way. I'm annoyed that you don't vote like I do. I'm annoyed that you don't champion the causes that I champion. And that causes some subtle division among us. I don't speak to you in the way that I should. I don't think of you in the way that I should. And God is really asking us, when we feel these things, when we experience these things, what, what is it about my desire that causes me to be a jerk to my family about that motorhome? Because I desire things to work perfectly. And God says, it doesn't have to work perfectly. Because I'm sovereign. I'm over all of the universe. It's that's an overly simple and long illustration way to say that a lot of how we find think, the, the things that manifest in our behavior, the things that manifest in our speech, are coming from a, a deeper place of a desire that we may not even be in touch with. Most of us are not operating at a level of self-awareness that we know what's going on in the deep recesses of our heart. And God's saying, I want you to dig deeper to get there. And I'm going to help you to do that. You see, the bungee cord, in essence, is an image of a, an attachment of faith 
that God is calling us to have in him through Christ in the power of the Spirit. An attachment in which we, we place our trust in Christ for what he says is best for us. I wanted my ignition to work every time I turned the key. And God said, hey, the bungee cord's good enough. And that's the posture to which Christ calls all of us to. He, he wants us to see our desires for what they are. He wants us to find ourselves in the story. He wants us to dig deeper and reflect. Too often we think we know ourselves and we're only operating at the surface level of our self-image. And we can look to some real superficial things and think that as disciples, we're doing great. My perfect attendance record at church, my every block filled on my, you know, one-year read-the-Bible plan. Christ wants us to take what we want and to trust him with it. And I think that, when you read the Gospels and see Christ interacting with his disciples and with those who approach him, that ultimately ends up being his whole approach to discipleship. What do you want? Will you trust me with it? He wants us to align our heads, our habits, and our hearts. Well, in uh, verse, the last half of verse 10 and 11 I read earlier, he, he tells us to put on the new self. He says, having been clothed with the new man that is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. He says, put off the old man and its practices. And he goes on to say, here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul tells us we have to, in the same way that we're putting to death and we're, we're shedding our earthly nature, we have to put on this new self like a garment, like the clothes we wear. And I don't want you to hear me suggesting that, that this renewal is directly the result of our effort because it's God's grace that enables it. It's the creative handiwork of God, but he's calling us to participate in this process. It, it comes from being joined to Christ. And that's where our own effort comes into play, my friends, in this equation. We, we must submit ourselves to the transforming work of the Spirit. And when we do that, when we submit ourselves to Christ, and we do that through being in his word, we do it through submitting ourselves to God in prayer, we do it by being in community with the body of Christ, with one another. It's a team sport. And what is the result? Paul reminds them. He says in verse 11, there's, there's no more division. In these set of contrasts he gives, they kind of break down into two categories, religious <clears throat> distinctions and cultural distinctions. The ways that we subtly tend to segregate ourselves from one another. He's saying there's no longer Baptists and non-Baptists. I'm not a Baptist. 
There's no longer those who attend Bible study or BSF and those who do it in their house. There's no seminary graduates or non-seminary graduates, although Dallas seminary graduates are the best. Um, there's no longer Texans or Californians. Don't want to tell you how I feel on that one. Republicans or Democrats or veterans, non-veterans, Americans, immigrants, whatever. Paul says none of that exists. Are those important distinctions in one sense? Yes. But should they divide us? Paul says no. He, he subsumes all of these divisions, all of these distinctions, all of these great things that make us a diverse body that's a reflection of Christ. Paul sums them up in one way. He calls them brothers and sisters in Christ. So I want to leave you with three applications, if you will. I want to give you two passages from the Gospels that you can look at. One is John from chapter 13, verses 21 to 38. And the other is Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 52. John 13, 21 to 38, and Mark 10, 35 to 52. And I want you to read those passages and see what's going on there. These are interactions between Jesus and his disciples and Jesus um, and the blind man Bartimaeus and his disciples. And I want you to, to notice in this interaction, what are the desires of these participants of the stories that, that you begin to notice? What are the desires that show up? And what is the posture that Jesus takes toward them? Both these people, his posture toward the people, and some of them are asking for some silly things, the disciples. One disciple is about to go betray him into the hands of those who would kill him. What is Jesus? Notice Jesus' posture toward them. And then also notice how, how aspirational desires are different from actual desires. We might say we want one thing, but really what's at work is something entirely different. And we're, you brothers and sisters, you and I, by doing this one application this week, are not going to solve this challenge. This, in my opinion, is the lifelong challenge of being a disciple of Christ. If we talk about submitting our will to God's will, this is where the rubber meets the road. It's where the bungee cord connects to the fuel control. And then I think you should uh, begin to take notice of things that come up in your own life, these little kairos moments, some people call them. Wow, I was really a jerk to my wife today, Mike. What's, what's going on? Why is that? And again, the focus should be on me, not the other. But at, and what, what is, why is God bringing this to my attention? What does he want me to do with this? These are just the beginnings of, of how we begin to submit ourselves to God. And the third application is to pray. Friends, you and I cannot transform in any way in our own strength and in our own power. It all comes from submitting our lives to the power of God that he's given all of us unlimited access to. The Holy Spirit which lives in our hearts. 
And we're about to begin an adult ministry series at the end of the month, looking at God's attributes. And I think a, a big part of beginning to see ourselves in the right light of who we are in the light of Christ and, and in the eyes of God is to contemplate who God is, to take notice of how God interacts with humankind in the, in the fullness of his deity in the person of Jesus Christ. Because, friends, being in Christ, as Paul reminds the church in Colossae, and as he's reminding us through this letter, being in Christ is the only thing that matters. If Christ is everything in everything, as verse 11 tells us, then nothing can diminish or disparage the standing of, of any one of us as humans in relation to one another. Christ is all that matters. And Christ is in all. So may you and I walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, putting to death our earthly nature and putting away our earthly practices. And may we live this life in communion with God by submitting our own desires to him. And may we live in communion with ourselves and with one another in the power of the risen Christ. And may our hearts be encouraged and joined together in love so that we may have all of the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery that Paul tells us is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, you are indeed our truth and our comfort and our peace and our hope for troubled times. And as Juanita led us in prayer this morning for this troubled part of our world, Lord, we lift them all up to you, those prayers and prayers for everywhere on this earth where trouble abounds, Lord. None of us are free from those things. And Lord, we want to proclaim our trust that you're sovereign over all, that our struggles and our troubles and our joys and our successes even don't take you by surprise. For Paul tells us that all things on earth were created by Christ, all things visible and invisible, all earthly powers, all the unseen principalities of the spiritual realm, all things were created through him and for him. And we give great thanks that Christ is before all things and that all things are held together in him so that we can submit all of our desires to him to be transformed, that that though your way may not work out the way we envision it or the way we want it, Lord, that we can trust in your goodness and that your kingdom plan doesn't depend on any one of us, but you've simply invited us to join you in your work, to be transformed into the likeness of your son, to proclaim your goodness and your glory throughout the world. So renew us in our desire to put away our earthly practices, to, which pit our flesh against your spirit and which undermine our relationship with ourselves and with others. And God, I pray that you would grow, help us grow in our capacity to be more attentive to our underlying desires. And with this renewed awareness that you bring to our attention that we would be compassionately curious with ourselves to dig deeper 
and to submit those desires to you to be transformed that your will may be our will. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, who is first in all things and is the head of this body and our church, for which we give great thanks. Amen.